most of us keep this inner being locked up, hidden away. A fiction writer doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to hide it. He doesn't have to keep it from anything. He can let it out, bring it out into the open, let it live, let it breathe. Hell, he can let it party, give it the car keys, let it ride. to the nightclub where we are the ones who say read a book read a book read a motherfucking book we're the podcast your mama warned you about i'm that hop slurping hogzilla having witch doctor of doom travis maxwell boone and with me tonight is our cosmically enlightened binder of scrotums and souls hey it's brian hell zombie thanks for having me happy to be here also with us that natter king of crushing it mountain our lovable bakemeister it's me in rick what and tonight, we have a multi-talented individual. He is a writer, a poet, a musician, artist, editor, and teacher. Andrew Nyberg, welcome to the show. Man, thanks for having me. This was a bolt out of the blue for me and for all of us here at the nightclub because we've actually never, ever, it's been mostly mostly like social media reach outs, had an email like, it's never happened. We've been oh, doing sure. this for almost four fucking years and never had a goddamn email. And out of nowhere, I see this and I, I get excited. Well, recently I did get an email and I meant I want to do this. So this is for all the listeners in Cyprus right now, the country or nation or whatever they are. I'm sorry. I'm not I'm not I'm not a studious person. I don't know about your country or your culture, but it's, it's a nation. It's a nation. The nation yeah. of Cyprus. A really are, cool one, too. Fucking a, they are because they're we're a little island. They're a little <laughs> island, bro. It's red off no, the coast. Travis is trying to be polite. What he's basically saying is that, as one of my Cajun cousins, he doesn't know how to read. So when he got the email, <laughs> he had to take it down to his local library and have a seven-year-old translate it for him. When he, <laughs> dude, they broke out a map and everything, a globe. I was like, I don't believe in that shit. At the library, he was, he was super excited that somebody explained to him what a cypress was. Um, <laughs> It, going through the email, we got something from another country. It's pretty cool. No, yeah, we we did. We're number three in the comedy realm in Cyprus on Apple Podcasts. I'm like, so I want I want to say since Andrew Nyberg and I'm coming, I'm getting to you, sir. Just you, you are the the meat on tonight's bone. <laughs> I, I want to say to the Cyprus folk out there, please get get back to us. Email us at the Nightclub Podcast at gmail dot com. Hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I don't give a fuck where. What do you love about the nightclub? Because I'm like blown away that two Cajuns and a Midwesterner are blowing minds in fucking Cyprus across the the ocean from from Lebanon and 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 over there. I I'm blown. Email away. us in Cyprusese too. We want to translate it. We want to have fun translating it. That is not right. That is not right. And we don't know what's right, but that ain't right. I know that's not right. It can't, <laughs> it can't be that. You can be able to read it either way, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, Mister Nyberg. You you emailed and I was just like ecstatic and I fucking messaged my boys and I'm like, bro, this guy, he's an author. He's got a book coming out. He's got two books coming out. 
he fucking teaches horror. I was just losing my shit. How did you, <laughs> how did you find us? And, and, and what, what's up? <laughs> Actually, it's as simple as it can possibly be. Um, I was doing searches for horror podcasts and you actually come up on multiple lists. And then I spent a good bit of time in uh, New Orleans myself. So I like, uh, you know, I uh, saw Cajuns, you know, and I was like, all right, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And um, fellow author who I've been talking with a lot, his name's Blaine Daigle. Um, he lives in Louisiana. So um, he's actually just putting out a book himself on uh, some on a Cajun haunting on the bayou. And, uh, yeah, I, I actually, uh, figured he'd probably be right up your alley. Um, but no, uh, I mean, uh, so I, I saw that, you know, a bunch of rowdy Cajun folk doing a horror podcast and I was like, well, shit, yeah, that's something I want to reach out to. Um, and you know, on top of that, uh, I'm trying to promote a whole bunch of work. And so, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to see what's out there. Dude. Yeah. You came, I like how you said that rowdy Cajuns doing a horror podcast. That's, that is <laughs> That's yeah. what's happening, and and our and our brother from the Midwest is an honorary Cajun because he, <laughs> he is. He's, he's eating frog. He has eaten he's, frog. It, he's Frog's slowly. Really good. He's slowly unlearning how to read. <laughs> <laughs> but I still can, and that's why you still need. Well, we'll always right. need you. That's we'll right. always need we'll, you. We'll baby. always need you, babe. <laughs> um, and and Andrew is now also an honorary Cajun because he said frog is good. Frog is <laughs> yeah yeah frog is good, and Andrew is Cajun. Mm-hmm. The the whole emphasis, like, well, I guess the the center around tonight is, and I think the main focus, at least from my, like, looking you up and, and looking at your official site, um, seeing some of the articles that you've written, and you were on a, a few podcasts that I saw, I listened to one of them on creative writing, I believe it was with uh, Spreaker. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, um, English Matters. Mm-hmm. It was, that, yeah. I, I was like, okay, cool, like, so seasoned in all that. But I think I think the focus of tonight will be mainly literature, which is sure. different for the nightclub because we're more of a film based. But you can't read. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, I can't read. Fair, I was raised on horror movies, so I, it's good. I, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm sorry. Trey. <laughs> yeah, he I, can't I'm, help himself. We love him for it. Yeah. R.I.P. R.I.P. Cormac McCarthy. I've never read anything you've ever written. Um, yeah. Um yeah exactly that and that's what I was going that's my first question I've never man. heard of that person who is that no, don't turn into Brian don't turn into <laughs> Brian and be like who is that I'm a boy boy <laughs> Andrew was segueing into my first question um in 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 the realm of horror what did you first encounter and when did you fall in love with horror I assume you are in love with it <laughs> oh yeah so that's a that's a complicated question in some ways, especially that second part. When did you fall in love with it? Um, see, the time I fell in love with it, and this is actually the simplest answer I can give, is the time when I realized I really enjoyed having nightmares. Um, so when I was little, my parents used to watch all sorts of horror movies. And uh, a lot of them were the really harmless stuff, uh, you know, B-horror movies, 1950s, The Blob, Them, It the Terror from Beyond Space. But uh one thing I remember really distinctly was watching the movie Alien when I was four. And um, first off, that's ever since been my absolute favorite uh, horror movie yeah. of all time. Um, yeah. Tied only with Aliens um, and yeah. closely followed, admittedly, by The Thing. Um, oh, so that's yeah. 
<laughs> but uh, but I mean, honestly, uh, Alien scared the ever living shit out of me. Um, and uh, one of the reoccurring horrors of my childhood was the that first scene when the the the, the face hugger leaps out of the egg onto Kane's face. Um, that was one of the, that that scene actually took me about 15 years to be able to watch with open eyes because I had such strong childhood impressions of being terrified by it. But that's, the thing is, is like for the longest time, I had these really nasty nightmares about it. And then I actually started to really enjoy them over time. And, um, you know, at the at the same time, I was watching a lot of other horror movies. Uh, you know, again, the thing uh, I watched Aliens like, I don't know, 200 times by the time I was nine. And, oh, shit. Uh, I I, sometimes um, I'd be homesick and my mom would be busy doing other things and I'd put it on three times in a row. Yeah, that was uh, one of my absolute favorites of childhood, because, you know, if if nothing else, those two movies pair so perfectly together. You have the absolute existential horror of Alien and then the amazing catharsis of Aliens, where uh, humans confront them on much more equal footing. And, you know, yeah, it's not as much horror. It's more sci fi action. But uh, You know, in terms of original and sequel, I can't really think of a better pairing. It's funny that you bring both of those up. I'm with you 100%, man. My favorite Alien film is the first one, and Ricky's favorite is the second one. <laughs> yes. Uh, and and we love we love them both. But we love them all, actually, but yeah. All of them. All oh, of them. I will even watch Alien vs. Predator 2. Well... I call it watching, but you can't really make out the screen half the time. So I will, I will say that is a problem. But uh, I, I like Alien Three, Alien Resurrection, Alien Covenant. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll, I'll put them all on. I think they all have their strengths, and uh, you know, some of them have their flaws. Um, but sure. uh, I'm willing to forgive those because holy shit, the Xenomorph is the single coolest science fiction horror creature ever put on screen. Nice. I love oh, that. Yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll co-sign that all day. It's funny talking alien. I, I told Travis earlier, I was talking to Ross, our buddy Ross Purvis from Cuddle mm-hmm. the Twat. And um, he is doing a really sweet, uh, a sweet like uh, predator cover up. Like a, a guy had a whole back piece that was a predator, but it was really poorly. Mm-hmm. So he sent me an image of the stencil that he made. And the stencil is just beautiful. But down on the very bottom edge, maybe maybe a, a half a tick off a of center it's there's a whole this big pile of skulls right because i mean the predator skulls that kind of makes sense there's an alien skull that he stenciled in <laughs> oh fuck i'm like dude that's awesome and he's like i was hoping somebody would catch that ross love you sorry oh. i'm derailing but it was awesome so i, I don't know what no one of the real. childhood great moments uh, this is what like 1992 i guess was the moment i paused predator 2 and saw the alien skull in the trophy yes. collection. Yes. That's one of those, uh, you know, just where the whole world comes together for you. And suddenly you see two of the most badass science fiction creatures of all time paired. That's like, Andrew, I, I got to ask you, have you watched Prey? Oh, yeah. I think it's pretty fantastic. Um, I think it, it's actually my favorite Predator movie. Yeah. Officially. Um, I love it. I love it the, to pieces. The first one will always be my favorite. Um, I get it. Yeah, I think in great. a lot of ways, it's a perfect movie. It does everything that it that it sets out to do exactly in the way that it needed to be done. Sure. Um, all the characters are distinct and lively. Um, great action sequences. Good stalker, you know, setup of a you know classic horror element. Um, but I will say. I was absolutely impressed by what an amazing follow-up Prey truly was, especially since, you know, unlike Aliens, where I think, um, 
you know, pretty much every movie has some real merit to it. I'm not sure I'd say the same about the in a Predator franchise. Uh, the Predator, to me, is a sore spot that uh, I think missed the mark yeah. pretty heavily. Yeah, Predators, I, Predators got some less than stellar uh, entries, but as a franchise, the franchise as a whole is rad. Yeah. I'd say, but say it does like, have some stinkers. Other than Alien versus Predator Requiem, the one where he was saying it's just too dark to fucking make out what's happening in that little neighborhood, yeah. um, the. Every film I've seen from the Predator franchise, I've enjoyed. I've seen parts one, two, the Predator, the Shane Black film, and the new movie Prey. I haven't seen mm-hmm. Predators, the Robert Rodriguez produced one. Yeah, Predators. Predators was fun, but it's just not on the same level. I mean, you know, well, you got Fat Morpheus in it. You got yeah. you got a bunch of rad cat. You got a rad cast. Adrian Brody, man, I haven't yeah. seen it Adrian. Yet. Adrian Brody. Yeah. The thing that hurt Predators was actually weirdly enough, you know, given Rodriguez's reputation as an action director, was uh, I felt like a lot of the action photography was surprisingly clumsy. Um, the characters were were pretty compelling and and well drawn, but. Uh, you know, well, some pre- of the bigger action sequences I felt actually felt pretty flat. They lacked intensity, which uh, was what I actually went went into it, like really expecting from Rodriguez. You know, that really fast paced, um, kind of chaotic, but fun gun violence. Uh, he, right, he, must, right. he must not produce films the same way Sam Raimi does, because if if I think if if Rodriguez would have been behind the camera, like directing the film, it would have been more. That's his style. He right. produced it, and I think he kind of left it too much in the hands of, based on what you're saying, I've never seen it. He must have left it too much in the hands of somebody else who wasn't of his experience, I'd say, as a filmmaker. But these sci-fi things that we're touching on, it's got me It's got me wondering, like you said, uh, the, the Thing, Alien, and Aliens are, are some of your favorite horror films of all time. What are some of your new, like more modern favorites of the last 20 years? We'll expand it out to. Oh, man. Uh, so, of course, recently I've been I'm a big fan of Ari Aster. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, while I know Hereditary to me actually kind of strangely has its detractors. Um, a lot of people, I think, feel it's a little bit too slow. Um, I'll admit I'm a. I'm a fan of horror that takes emotion seriously. Um, And, you know, one problem you have in a lot of horror is you have to have, you know, characters die. You know, you have to have that, you know, that that sort of mortal horror, I think, in a lot of in a lot of pieces, at least. Um, And I think uh, in a lot of, you know, especially the slasher series and stuff like that, you have characters who get murdered in front of other characters and there's no trauma. There's no real emotional impact. I mean, yeah, you know, they'll break down for like 10, you know, five minutes on screen, but then suddenly they just kind of carry on. And to some extent, you know, you can argue adrenaline, you know, the need to survive and stuff like that. But I, I think there's a lot of horror and just how, awful living with yourself can be and uh you know hereditary in particular i think is a film that really captures that and then also manages to go absolutely batshit crazy at the end and uh tony you know, collette is a fucking 10 in that movie tony collette's a, oh, a straight 10 i will always get chills she smash her face against that attic door oh, that yes. was one of the most unsettling and uncanny moments i've seen in years but yeah oh yeah Oh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Mid- Midsommar, of course, is fantastic as well. Um, I was a huge fan of The Witch. I think uh, I think in a lot of ways, I think The, the Witch is uh, 
one of the more horrifying movies I've seen in a while, simply because it's so absolutely hopeless for the main cast from beginning to end. They never right. have a chance. And you, you can tell that they are absolutely outmatched and have no idea what's going on very early in the film. And so there's just this sense of impending doom over that whole movie. And, you know, uh, it, it's, it, it's definitely one that stood out for me. And then, of course, in terms of recent fun, though, because, you know, I do think that there's multiple there's sort of multiple veins of horror effects you want from your horror. And so, you know, sometimes you want that creeping, brutal existential dread that a film like The Witch makes. Sometimes you want that heart pounding freak out that you get during an intense sequence like the end of Midsommar. Other times you want something that's just an absolutely wild ride like Barbarian. Um, you know, another of my, uh, mm-hmm. my recent favorites in that, you know, it's it's not a perfect film by any stretch, but at the same time, I could legitimately say there were several points in that movie where, A, I had no freaking clue where it could possibly be going from where it took me. And then I wasn't even sure at times what kind of movie I was watching after some of its more abrupt shifts. And I actually find that to be pretty impressive. I watch a lot of horror and, uh, you know, a lot of science fiction, a lot of, uh, you know, dark dramas and uh yeah, c- catching me off guard and, and putting me on unstable footing is something I really appreciate. Yeah, looking at Barbarian, um, the moment where we shift and all of a sudden we have um, our buddy driving down the PCH. Honestly, sitting in the theater, I honestly <laughs> thought somebody put the wrong reel on. That's my first thought, like, like looking over my shoulder going, is somebody watching? Because I don't think this is the right thing. <laughs> um, and then bringing him back in. So yeah, Barbarian is absolutely fantastic. Before Travis says it, because I know Travis is going to say it. I'm going to say it right now here in the nightclub. Ricky, I, I think you have to help me vote on this. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to get a glass Mason jar and I'm going to call it the skinnamarink jar. And every time Travis says skinnamarink, he has to put a dollar in the jar. I wasn't even going to bring it up. I was actually about to try to pick apart barbarian for a second. Right, well, then I'm going to get a second jar. And every time I say terrifier two, I'm going to put a dollar in the terrifier two jar. Okay. Oh, no. get a third jar, and every time I ask him about phantasm, <laughs> okay, three jars. There we go. Okay. Three jars. So, fair okay. warning: I have not seen Skinnamarink. Uh, it's on my list. It's uh, it's definitely one I fully intend to see, but um, it has not made it to the top of my pile yet. Well, and I want to I want to define or define defend Travis. Obviously, as my Cajun cousin, and say watch it because. I think everybody needs to see it. I, I'm not sure everyone's going to love it, but I think everyone needs to see it because I think it is a really interesting iteration and maybe a next generation of, I'm going to call it psycho mind fuck horror because <laughs> that's what it was to me. It was a psycho mind fuck horror. Um, so definitely see it. Um, how about Terrifier 2? Has that one been on? Yeah, we've seen, uh, I saw Terrifier 2 about uh, about a month ago. I've not seen Terrifier 1, though, I will say. But um, I'm not sure you really need to. They yeah, pretty much encapsulate no. it in a couple couple lines of backstory. And I was like, oh, I, I got it. I got it. Um, but uh, no, I think um, I think uh, the, the, the metric I always bring to horror movies is um, I think about what the movie seems to be trying to do. And then I ask how well it's doing it. So, you know, I might... Um, watch uh, one of my favorite uh, horror movies actually and I'm not even sure it entirely counts as horror but um, Bubba Hotep um, Bruce Campbell, Aussie Davis um, it's one of my favorite movies to explain to people who don't uh, don't know horror but um, 
you know, I watched that, um, you know, numerous times. First time I saw it, though, um, I didn't know anything about what it was about other than it had Bruce Campbell playing uh, an elderly Elvis in a nursing home and which put coin. You know, I was already sold. You know, you didn't. need. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's all you need. Um, That's all you need. If that doesn't if that doesn't sell you, then I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that's a movie that in no way is frightening. You know, right. it, aside from maybe a little bit of existential fear about getting old. But on the other hand, you know, it's got clear horror elements, but it's a comedy that also is really, really tragic. Um, it's actually a tremendously sad movie if you watch it through the right lens. And it does all of these things, though, really well. It clearly has defined what it plans to do, the journey it wants to take you on. And it does it extremely well with Terrifier 2. You know, there's that opening sequence in the morgue. And um, by the end of that sequence, you know exactly what that film is intending to do. If you don't, then you must have gone and, you know, fix yourself a snack or something like that. Um, And I think it's actually extremely effective at what it wants to do. It provides you with um, what I find to be a very creepy and compelling villain. Um, You know, Art the Clown, of course, doesn't exactly get a lot of development, but his actor definitely puts a hell of a lot of personality into him. In fact, more than you get in a lot of classic slashers. Um, You know, the blank face is the common face of the slasher. And so having that sort of gleeful joy on the part of the character is, um, you know, a really strong touch and the actor sells it really well. Um, And then, you know, the, the level of detail on the gore. I mean, on the one hand, it is, you know, it's, it's cartoonish gore. It's, it's splatter punk to the point where, um, you know, it's not like you really feel like you could possibly be seeing reality at that point. Um, but that, that's part of what, what sells you on disconnecting from reality and just enjoying the ride of the film. Um, you know, after that, um, I mean, a lot of great suspenseful sequences. Actually, my personal favorite was, um, probably the scene in the costume shop. Um, oh, yeah. I thought that had wonderful tension Um, because at the end of the day, uh, unless I'm looking at something like, a, you know, well, even actually in a horror comedy, like to me, horror is all about dwelling in tension. You know, that's like the foundation of it is how how can you establish that anticipation that something is about to go horribly fucking wrong? Um, And is the movie doing it compellingly? And Terrifier 2 does it. I mean. It's larger story. Sure. You know, if I wanted to get put on my, you know, my, my college professor cap, um, you know, I could definitely probably dog on its lack of, you know, serious thematics, but I don't think it ever meant to have those thematics. Instead, it's got some thematic elements that pop up here and there, but that wasn't the effect it was going for. And so, you know, from the filmmaking point of view and the writing point of view, you choose an effect, you know, that's why I do it. I want to affect people. I want to make people feel things. You choose the effect, and if you do that effect and you do it well, then you won. That's the whole point. And Terrifier think, 2 does it greatly. I think Terrifier 2 was sold on being the gross-out horror film that it is um, and to, to the point to where they had the media talking about how people were vomiting in the theater. Yeah. But when right. it comes to the themes of the film, I actually do think there's a lot of lore building and a lot of themes in this movie, and I do think you should watch part one, honestly. Yeah, um, yeah I'd say part one for sure. Yeah, watch it. yeah. Uh, I would agree with that um, well, because it builds on everything. Right. All Hallows Eve even go back there. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'd say go back further to, to the to short films. Yep. Because as silent as, as silent as art is, it's, and I would admit that, and I'll agree that it's a little bit difficult to plot his growth. Um, but if you go back to All Hallows Eve and then go on to the first Terrifier movie, 
you do see a little bit of it. How he sure. he he starts out as sort of a, like an in the dark, like almost like a pop out sort of killer, getting into Terrifier the original. He's just he's just out and about. He's the equivalent of like a homeless guy in clown makeup <laughs> walking down the bag <laughs> over his shoulder, which in and of itself is to me at least is creepy as hell. So I think it has I think it has maybe a bigger message, but like so when you have the time. Uh, definitely oh yeah dude that and that's what i'm saying like i think there's also themes in part two that i would welcome you to go back and listen to our review of it we're we're ridiculous but also we we make points and i think there are really strong themes in the movie that the director is probably burying a little bit underneath the gore and the advertisements (laughs) uh for what the film is but does it go on a little too long maybe maybe but the lord of the rings went on too long for some people (laughs) so but i don't think it's right I think it should always be seen the way the director intended, and he put Agreed. that shit out. I think part he put three that is... shit out there, and it was a ballsy fucking move, and it and it paid off for him. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I want to say about Art the Clown because you were bringing up uh, how much personality he has. I've said it before; he has more personality than Freddy, and he doesn't have to speak a fucking word. <laughs> he doesn't have any one-liners, any of that bullshit. And mm-hmm. I just think it's impressive. Well, no, that's yeah. A fine line between being prosaic and being comedic, right? And he's he's definitely both of those, but he does it all with never uttering a single word. So to me, as a horror fan, a lot of times, and you guys can go ahead and disagree with me, for your killer, your creature, whatever else, when it has a way to directly communicate, for some reason it's less scary. I don't know why exactly, but it's less scary. And it dehumanizes them a bit. Maybe. Maybe that's for sure. Okay. I uh, like the strong silent type also. Boy. Well, Have you seen Phantasm, Andrew? <laughs> you break out your jars, bitch, because here it comes. Have you seen Phantasm? It's another Coscarelli movie. So um I saw Phantasm when I was maybe twelve or thirteen, I gotta Ooh. say. And my embarrassing confession with that is, is I barely remember it. Oh no! I know. Well, no, that just means you have a journey to go on. That's yeah. all that yeah. means. You need a rewatch. You need oh a yeah, rewatch, brother. Th- these movies are not top tier Hollywood budget movies, but they're with they're made with passion by people who have a passion for the for the genre and for the story that they're telling. And I think if you watch them in succession, parts one through five. Even though part five veers heavily into modern tech, like CGI crappiness, but yeah, but it's done in in a way that it it's like when I saw it and Ricky put me on this shit. When I saw it, I was just like, "Oh, I see, I see," and 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 it opened my eyes. And Grindhouse, break out your other jar, because yeah, I'm gonna back you up on what you were saying. Watch Skin and Marink, cause. That is my favorite movie of the year, and it's my favorite horror movie of the last like twenty years. It it's it's it will watch it at night alone with the lights off. With watch headphones. it with headphones. Watch it on your on your laptop with your earbuds in. Hmm. I draw everything else out because you gotta hear everything. Part of the part of the piece I struggle with that movie is I saw it in the theater and with the way the sound design is. If you if you don't have a closed environment like headphones, you don't catch everything. And when you don't catch everything, there's little whispers and little words in there that mm. you don't, you don't hear. Um, and 
Because the first time I saw it, I saw it in the theater. I went there and I thought it was awful. I thought it was awful. Um, he was mad, bro. I was really mad. Really mad. He was um, actually mad. And it was about the fourth time I watched it, and I did it with headphones in the dark. And I I can't say that I was startlingly afraid, but I had a moment where I got goosebumps, my nipples got hard, and I was like, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that's the thing that it did for Travis the first time he watched the whole thing. And so I got it. Like, so it, it's not going to be ever on my top 10 list, but I did finally get it. It's my number one right now. Um, but of 2023. Well, check this out. You love Bubba Hotep, the same director. It was his first horror movie, Phantasm. Yeah. I've, I mean, I know of it, per, you know, really well. And it's one of those that, um, it's come up many times in conversation and I keep meaning to go back and rewatch it. But on the other hand, because I know I did see it as a kid, it's been really easy to push off into that pile of rewatch. But I don't have time. Um, I do need to check that one out because, you know, uh, one of the things that stands out about Baba Hotep and is that, uh, you know, it's, it's a film where you can tell the filmmakers, the cast, the crew, everybody, they really cared about the movie that they were making. Um, you know, they weren't just, you know, slapping their way through it just to get a product out on the shelf or in a, in a right. theater or something like that. And, you know, I read a little bit about it. And one thing that sort of stood out to me was, um, you know, I don't know if you know, but the, the original run of the theater run of that movie, um, only opened in six theaters because Coscarelli decided that he would rather spend the production budgets on a longer shoot than having enough copies of the film to have a nationwide opening um and so yeah he uh you know he he, he did a six week instead of a three week shoot which is what the studio's budget had given him and um, he only made six copies of the film for the uh, the initial opening weekend which i was lucky i lived in knoxville tennessee at the time and um they had uh, the downtown west theater which was the regal cinema chains uh flagship art house um they were headquartered in knoxville and so um knoxville actually ended up being one of the opening cities for bubba hotep and so me and a bunch of friends got to see it on opening night because we heard nice. about it during production and nice. uh yeah and it was uh, it was one of the coolest films to get a chance to see because then uh, you know for for months after that you know you know, I, I would just be like, you know, I tell people, hey, have you seen Bubba Hotep? It's, you know, uh, elderly Elvis in a nursing home teams up with a black guy in a wheelchair who thinks he's JFK and they fight a mummy. And yeah. people just kind of scare <laughs> yeah, me. And that's one of my favorite things about uh, about that kind of horror. Oh, For yeah. Sure. Those Andrew, crazy wonky B movies. They have oh, my yeah. brain <laughs> at the White House in an <laughs> underground lab and they replaced it. With a bag of sand. <laughs> <laughs> Bubba Hotep is up in Mama's box. Dude, Andrew, I love that you mentioned The Witch and Hereditary being up there among some of your favorite more modern horror films. Um, we've covered both of those films on the nightclub. We need to I, cover The Lighthouse. Yes, we oh, do. The Lighthouse is fabulous. We also mm-hmm. talk about modern horror directors on this show, and and I think Aster and Eggers are up there among the newer wave that are doing great things in horror film. But I, I want to preface my next question by asking you this. Did you grow up stationary? No. Uh, I mean, it depends on how you look at it. Um, and really quickly, one thing I want 
name I did forget to mention in contemporary horror that I absolutely love, and I have to mention this one because it was hugely influential on me, um, is Annihilation, um, the book mm. by Jeff Vandermeer, and then the Alex Gar- Garland film as well. Mm. Um, but no, I, uh, I lived in Texas until I was in fifth grade, I think, but then I got moved to New Hampshire from there. Um, lived there until uh, sophomore year of high school, and then I got moved back to Texas. Midway through that year, I got moved back to New Hampshire. Then I got moved to Tennessee. Um, I spent my first year of college in uh, Waco, Texas, and then I finally moved back to Tennessee, and I've, I've been in Tennessee since. So I've, I've, I've kind of moved around a decent bit, actually. Okay. Well, and I was wondering that because I, I... – it only it only dawns on me because I guess me, well me and Ricky both grew up in the same small town in Louisiana Mamu, and as writers and we write not like you but we we've written things and sometimes like and I've learned this from Stephen King he, someone else may have said it but I learned it from him you write what you know so like I would write a lot of short horror fiction based in a small town, blah, 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 and build my lore. Me and a buddy of mine, Cody, we we had um, stories that were different from one another, but his town, Vanlin, took place near my town, Moxim. So our stories would reference each other because we'd share our stories in high school with each other. And, and, and so we had that little thing going on, but what interests me about that is like getting into Stephen King, Dean Coombs, Clive Barker, among other authors when I was younger, what inspired you to put pen to paper? Like, like what were your early influences? Like, what did you read growing up that, that got you to that point where you're like, I'm going to write a story. Oh, so I, there's, there's, there's two sides to that answer. One is a, a continuation of what I said earlier about watching horror movies and stuff when I was a kid. So my sister growing up, um, she's always, she was always the type who was um, a bit, insecure about creativity um she was always uh, a bit c- concerned about uh, self-expression and things like that and um she got really interested in writing for a very brief point and um this was right around when i was in maybe third or fourth grade and um she actually decided she wanted to write a parody because uh, she loved mad magazine but she didn't want to be doing that alone and so she she actually locked me in her room with her and forced me to sit there with a notepad and try to write something. And at the time, I couldn't think of much. So, um, cause, you know, I was pretty young. So I actually, I started writing the transcript of the movie Aliens out from memory. Um, <laughs> and, uh, that was kind of like the first big thing I really sat down to do. And it was kind of cool because, you know, I produced page after page after material. I'd never done anything like that before. But then, um, one other thing about growing up in our house is, aside from having uh, parents who watched all these horror movies, um, you know, basically the the household policy was is if I could understand the book, I was allowed to read the book. Um, you know, I might be called upon to talk about the book if I did, um, but otherwise, you know, the the all the bookshelves were fair game. And um, you know, I started off reading some, uh, you know, a little bit of science fiction and things like that. But really, my, my dad had a huge Stephen King collection. 
And so, um, you know, really early on, I started reading Stephen King books and, um, you know, I, I read it when I was like 12 or 13, um, Pet Cemetery when I was 13 or 14, um, uh, The Shining, uh, Salem's Lot. Night Shift was a huge favorite of mine, actually. That was part of, um, like, uh, I actually started writing horror short stories. It took me a long time to ever even think about writing a horror novel. Um, I actually didn't even know if I could sustain it long enough. But uh, when I was young, I used to love writing spooky short stories, and it was hugely because of um, Night Shift. And um, also... Um, Oh, what's the, what's the one with Skeleton, Skeleton Crew? Skeleton Crew, the one with the survivor type, uh, which is another of my oh. long, like lifelong favorites uh, stories. Um, but then I read a lot of Dean Koontz, uh, a little bit of Clyde Barker as well. You know, you know, I'm, I was a child of the eighties. And so, um, you know, I have some pretty predictable, um, horror influences as far as the stuff that was really formative in my reading. But then also, uh, I, I was reading at the same time a lot of um, science fiction. My dad was really into Asimov and Clark, and so um, oh, kind of had nice. a lot of those at my disposal. And then, weirdly enough, uh, I don't know about I think my sophomore year of high school, um, I, I was at, I had to read uh, Crime and Punishment. And um, I actually got really interested in Russian literature as well, especially Dostoevsky. And, um, you know, I'll definitely say if there's anybody who knows how to do bleak, it's definitely Russian literary authors. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, all those things started combining together. And um, going into the college, um, I, I wanted to be a science fiction novelist and, um I started taking fiction classes. I was actually a computer science major in again, and um, I absolutely hated everything I was doing at every minute of that major. Um, and so I started taking writing classes and got really um, interested in writing science fiction and uh, was working on a novel and um, a novel of an extremely similar premise came out. Um, and it basically, uh, and I honestly, I don't even remember what novel that was. Um, don't you hate when motherfuckers have the same goddamn idea as you <laughs> and you're like, God damn, why damn wasn't I on the earth? You know, dude, I, I, and I'm not trying to derail you. I'm sorry. Your answer is so good and, and you're going on, but I, I feel you on that. I just, I had to say like, I've had ideas before and I'm like, I haven't seen this yet. And then I'll research it. <laughs> And it turns out someone wrote it before, oh, like yeah, way yeah. before. Oh, no, sorry, it's, it's my, sorry. No, no, seriously, that's a that's that's a, a great thing to point out because uh, you know, to some extent, um, that's my biggest fear as a novelist is um, you know you spend so much time working on a book and you know then you suddenly discover that um, you know it's already there um, or something that's so close to it is already there that there's no point to you putting it out. Um, and yeah, you know, for a long time. Um, you know, I ended up, that's how I actually ended up writing poetry. Um, I, uh, I had, I had the novel kind of go disastrously wrong. I started working on a literary novel that, um, like honestly at the time I really didn't know how to finish it. Um, and so I got like 250 pages in and it was just like, you know, there's like 400 pages left in this book and I have no idea how to end it. And, uh, I kind of hit a bit of a point of sort of creative crisis, but, my poetry was doing really well at that point. I was getting outstanding um, remarks from, you know, the faculty I was working with. I was starting to get publications and um, I actually took quite a, a long, a long sojourn into poetry. And uh, it was my main publications for God, actually more than a decade uh, from 2004 all the way up until um, 2021. I didn't publish a single piece of prose. 
Um, I got about maybe 50, 50 to 60 poems out, but no prose. Um, I had a few short stories I was shopping around. They'd always get a close, but no cigar. And, um, yeah, right around 20, you know, I was, I was secretly working on a few novels during that time, but, um, n- never really sending them out. And, uh, then COVID hit, and that was sort of the big game changer, to be honest. Um, I, uh, had a lot of pent up anxiety, especially having a family. Um, you know, uh, there was a lot of concern. My, my family is med- a lot of my family is medical too. So they were kind of on the front lines of the scariest parts where people had no idea what was happening. And, uh, my sister is an ER physician. And so she was like overwhelmed with sick and dying people in the early stages. And so, yeah, it was really freaky. And, um, I, uh, just ended up really channeling a lot of that into, um, you know, into uh, creativity, especially um, writing prose. And yeah, and, uh, you know, started suddenly having a really crazy run of good luck in terms of magazines and and websites starting to take my work. And, uh, you know, I had um, a horror novel that um, was, about, you know, it was like, I don't know, 80% done. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to finish this up. And uh, uh, I wrapped uh, I, I wrapped up a draft on that, and then all of a sudden, I wrote an entire another novel in about four months. Um, and those are the two novels that are, um, you know, currently on their way out. But I will actually say um, this uh, was something kind of unexpected. But um, it also turns out that I now have a third novel under contract. You've got a <laughs> trilogy, boy. You got a trilogy well, on your hands. Well, they're completely unrelated, but, uh, spiritual you know, trilogy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, no, uh, I actually just signed and returned to the contract yesterday. Um, nice. so, um, this is actually the first like public announcement I'm making about it. Sweet. Um, Nightclub but, uh, exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> Thank but you. No, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, kind of coming back to sort of the, you know, the, the, that journey though, it really was about, I was probably around, midway through high school when I started to really think about myself as wanting to be a writer. Um, I never really, I didn't think of it, of it at that point as a profession. Um, that's kind of why I went into computers. You know, I had to convince the parents to pay for college and, uh, writing wasn't exactly the best way to do that. Um, so I kind of figured maybe I could write stories for video games and then make the games. But, um, you know, but basically though, yeah, it was, it, you know, that was kind of the start of when I really shifted gears. And then uh, around college is when I took, you know, about junior year college is when I started taking writing very seriously. I started to realize that um, people were interested in the things that I wrote. It wasn't just something I was doing because I really wanted to. Um, there actually seemed to be readers who wanted it. And um, and from there, just kind of kind of really launched on forward. My household growing up was, I think, similar to yours. Uh, more along the lines of, oh, you want to pick up a book? Go ahead and read it. Um, I, I talked a little bit about this on uh, a different podcast, but uh, I was in a bookstore when I was a very young kid, maybe 10, and I picked up the book, The Howling, <laughs> and, and and was like, can I buy this? And my parents were like, it's a book. Buy it. Just buy it and read it. Now, The Howling was way more adult than I was ready for, like way more adult than I was ready for. <laughs> um but it was also one of the things that got me a into horror, but b thinking that I could create my own thing. Now it sounds like you had a super supportive household, which is absolutely awesome. My question is, I grew up in a household where it was like, get off your ass, get out there and work. 
and just do this. And and when you're doing that, I, for my chair anyway, there's not a lot of time or room for creativity. Um, so from someone like me that I, I feel like has got probably a lot of bottled up creativity and I, and I do it in other ways. I do woodworking and I like cars and I do whatever else I've been trying to write for, let's call it 10, 12 years. Mm-hmm. I, I have a story going. It, it, it centers around my city. Uh, so I, I know the landmarks well. I can put details in. How do you, and I know this is such a general question, but it's an honest question that I have. How do you keep going? Like, how do you keep pushing forward? Because that oh. is, I, I will come down here and I will put down 50 words and I'll look at it and go, oh, that sucks. And I'll get frustrated and I'll walk away. So how do you, how do you keep the fire lit? So there's a, I, I, I've got, I've got to give a multi-part answer to this one. And that's it. It's, it's, it's a tough question because uh, there is one small part where um, like one part of that question answer is, you just keep telling yourself to fucking do it. Even when you hate doing it, you just keep doing it. Um, you know, every book that I've worked on, and I'm actually, I will qualify this by saying I love writing. And so that does help me to some extent. Um, but there are times in every book I've written where I am absolutely exhausted. I don't want to do another damn moment of it. Um, or other times I'll look at it and be like, what the fuck am I doing? I have no idea how I could possibly continue the story on. Um, you know, you hit those moments of crises. Um, and there is an extent to which you just keep doing it. But one of the, uh, one of the more practical pieces, pieces of advice I, I do always give people is, is to always remember that writing is by definition a discipline. Um, and a learned skill. Um, so it's not, you know, writing's a really weird thing. Um, you know, if you really think about re- what writing is, you know, language itself is pretty fucked. Um, you know, uh, like just drinking alcohol, you know, uh, alcohol is, um, a word that has no connection to the thing it represents, you know. So, you know, first off, we have to learn all of these arbitrary tags. Second, we have to learn how to freaking spell them. And, you know, there's no relationship really between any of the letters and any sort of tangible, you know, tangible meaning. And so, you know, it's this really weird thing that we do. Um, you know, it's in no way natural to us. Um, language is more natural, of course, but writing is this really weird, symbolic, abstract process. And as a result, if we're not doing it steadily, then we're not going to be doing it as well as we should. You know, we don't, um, you know, uh, you know, I I used to be an athlete as well. Um, I used to love sports when I was a kid, you know, your, your parents got you out to go, um, you know, work. Um, for me, actually, one thing that helped sort of, you know, keep my parents cool with whatever I wanted to do in my, my free time was that I played like five different sports. Um, I was a baseball player, a soccer player. I ran track, played tennis and swam. And, um, God you know, so I, every every day I was really physical, and I loved bike riding too. Actually, triathlon. <laughs> that boy would have crushed all them kids in heavyweights. Like, get the fuck out my way. <laughs> but no, um, but the thing is, is uh, you know, part of you know, one thing I learned from that though is the only thing that ever made me any good at any of those is that I was always practicing. So you know, you go to play a baseball game, but if you haven't been hitting the ball all week and throwing in the backyard, you're gonna suck. Um, writing's the same way. Um, you know, uh, you know, 
write every day, even if it's got nothing to do with what you're actually really trying to work on. Um, you know, it can be, uh, you know, writing about movies. Um, you know, you could just, you know, sit down and try to describe the taste of a silver bullet. Um, which is yeah. a strangely difficult task to accomplish. Yeah, he's uh, doing it. <laughs> yeah. He's doing but, the thing. Uh, but uh, but no, I mean, you know, any type of writing you can do basically helps keep your skills sharp. So that way, when you're ready to sit down and do the real work, you're there. You're you're practiced and you're ready to go. Um, so that's the second thing. Third is um, there are some basic elements of craft I think that can really help people get started. Um, I think one of the hardest points you kind of mentioned, you know, you sit down and you write fifty words. You kind of got this idea that you want to execute, but when you start putting form to it, it starts to struggle. And you know, this is um, this is sort of a tricky area because I think a lot of folk. Um, get really apprehensive about trying to think, for example, structurally about a piece, you know, trying to think about planning and asking some, you know, sort of upfront questions um, that sort of determine the path of some parts of the story. But I find that there's a couple of key things that um, every story I've ever written is better if I can answer them. And that is um, early as early as I can, I ask, okay, who do I think is the actual protagonist of this story? It may sound like, you know, really simple and obvious, but, um, you know, we actually don't always ask that when we sit down and just start composing. But so we want to identify who the main characters are. But then more importantly, we want to look at that character and ask, who, uh, what does this person want? What is their driving desire? What is the main thing that they're trying to accomplish? And the clearer and more primal that desire is more often than not the more more often than not the more compelling the character is going to be so you know you might look at something like you know quentin tarantino and kill bill you know what does the bride want she wants revenge, revenge. on the five people you know on the people who um you know uh you know attempted to kill her and then also um you know she as she, as she thinks at least you know kills her child killed her child so she has this very you know um she has a personal motive and then also a motherly motive and then we also know what form that revenge is going to be she specifically wants to take their lives in very direct hands-on fashion Titularly it is kill bill <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but you know it's it's a very clear direct motive and we understand it from beginning to end and because it's very fundamental because it's driven by very base emotions all viewers understand that motive um, you know, not everybody's going to condone it. Some people will even criticize the film as having a character who's fundamentally amoral. But at the same time, we can all understand her journey. And that's the real key for that. Now, here's the second part that couples with that, though. So storytelling is one of the oldest things that humans do. We've been at it a really freaking long time. And, you know, a lot of our storytelling traditions um, are um, ingrained in us. So, for example, you know, I watch a lot of movies. I read a lot of books. And, um, you know, part of what makes my understanding of good storytelling is the accumulative effect of all of the things that I've digested. And one thing that uh, is fairly interesting to me is that while there's 8 million shades of levels of description There's 8 million shades of what it means for prose to be paced is only a handful of fundamental structures that tend to reoccur in most things that we encounter. And what I mean by that is um, 
most stories are arranged in a very Greek fashion, according to a three or five act structure. You'll have either two principal narrative turns that redirect narrative momentum and desires towards the next goal, or you'll have four. So you might have something like, you know, and you can actually test this out. Watch any 90 minute movie on Netflix. And one thing you'll see is that at the um, 27 to 33 minute mark, a major event will occur to the protagonist, usually in the form of either new information or an obstacle that's, that, that challenges uh, where they've been heading, and it's going to redirect them into the middle stretch of the film. At 57 to 63 minutes, you'll see a similar redirection that steers them towards the climactic action of the film and the resolution. Um, in a two-and-a-half-hour movie, you'll typically see uh, a five-act structure executed roughly at the 30-minute marks as well. If you watch a 30-minute television program, at least according to prior uh, pre-streaming days, uh, when they were filling a 30-minute air slot, you'd usually have an open, you know, cold open scene of some form that's not directly connected to the rest of the plot. You'd then have opening credits, followed by a roughly seven to eight-minute stretch of narrative up until the first turn that then, at, at which point, again, an event occurs that redirects you into the middle action towards the um, 14 to 16-minute mark where you then see the second turn leading towards the um, the concluding action of the episode. 40-minute um, television show, an hour time slot, 42 minutes, falls into roughly the same five uh, into five eight-minute increments as well. So the reason I'm, I'm breaking all this down in such clear terms is we have to keep in mind, everybody who's watching shit has been watching that. Mm -hmm. Books are fairly similar. They're structured typically in three or five act structures. Um, so everybody who's reading lots of books, the people who are consuming lots of literature, they're all encountering these same fundamental pacings. And when the first act is 12 minutes long, we start to feel it's kind of wonky. It's kind of off. If the middle act is only four minutes, it also feels wrong. It feels like it's rushed. It's too chaotic. If those acts aren't meeting these ingrained perceptions of what good storytelling is, we're going to have a hard time reaching our audience. Now, here's the thing. I'm mentioning this because to me, this kind of basic structural element is really liberating if you follow it, actually, because you can do anything else. You can have whatever characters you want, you can have whatever, whatever um, plot you want, whatever setting you want. But you're giving your audience that note of familiarity, the thing that they're going to recognize, whether it's consciously or unconsciously. Um, and so when I sit down to write a story, I, I ask myself two basic questions. These are my two concessions to convention. What does my protagonist want? And what are at least two primary plot events that can occur roughly one third and two thirds of the way into the story that, are, that I'm going to plan everything else around that are going to redirect the action to create the sense of a three act structure um, for short stories? I find that works absolutely fabulously. Um, you know, basically, uh, readers seem to recognize, um, you know, either intuitively or directly that the pacing works really well. And now part number four is um, that. You know, you, you do this until you start to get comfortable with your storytelling. When you feel like you, you know, when, when you get, get past that, that feeling of like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing or, um, you know, that, that, that kind of panic you get staring at a blank page or what have you. Um, you know, when you feel like you're starting to land stories that are, you know, you're, you're completing them, you're starting to be able to build through a basic structure, then you can complicate it. Then you can start making those decisions to to vary from it, to add new things into it, to break away entirely. But um, you know, kind of kind of getting yourself really settled and 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 firm on sort of a couple fundamental structures 
can then help liberate you to experiment more consciously where you know what you're doing and why. Well, fuck me. <clears throat> I'm going to get you a pulpit, a collar, and a cloak because you are preaching, and I <laughs> this is outstanding. Um, well, <clears throat> gives me two follow-up questions that I think will be easy. Feedback, and, and how do you get it? Do you get it from your family, from uh, colleagues? And then the third question is really simple, but it, it goes to my life and how busy it is. Is audible blasphemy? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll I'll deal with that second one first. Absolutely not. Um, wow. Honestly, I, I mean, I know that there's some people who who literally t- try to tell me that um, you know that listening is not reading. And I mean, I get that there are elements of different mental processing, but you know what? And and the, sorry sorry to put it this way, but to the people who say that listening isn't reading, go fuck yourselves. Yeah, yes. uh, say it, it say it. <laughs> you know, first off, that is so appallingly offensive to me in terms of people who are blind are you saying that they can't read that they can't process stories i mean i don't know sorry that's that's one of those things that really really kind of kind of gets me gets to me but um, say it say it does um but no i mean you know all i care is that we're engaging with storytelling we're thinking about language who cares if it's if it's on audible or if it's on a page or it's on a screen you know, for all I care, you know, nuns could be reciting it to me by a choir, and I still count that as reading. But uh, no, the the other one though, feedback. Um, so that that's a tricky one, to be honest. Um, so you know, I, I have multiple sources of feedback that I get. Um, of course, I'll, I'll say my wife's my one of you know my favorite reader. Um, one of my my favorite uh, authorial pieces of advice comes from the author Kurt Vonnegut, and. Um, I can't remember. I think it's in the opening of Bluebeard, maybe. Um, maybe it's Mother Night. But one thing he, he talks about in his introduction is the is that all of his books, each one, he chose one person that he wrote that book to and that they're the audience for that book. And he tries to do everything in that book to meet their expectations perfectly. And beyond oh, wow. that, you know. You know, he doesn't care from there. That, that is you know, interesting. Of course, you know, he's Vonnegut, so he can do what the fuck he wants. Uh, <laughs> or could, I guess. But um, but no. Um, so, you know, I'll say my, my wife's definitely my favorite reader. I, I, I'd be lying to say that um, there isn't a part of me who always wants to impress her a bit with the things that I write. Um, you know, when I write something that makes her cry that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not happy that she's crying, but I'm I'm happy that I made her <laughs> cry without doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, right, right. But uh so, I mean, I, I do listen to her very carefully um, and she's she's a good she's a good reader, too. So that's really important. But um, but no, um, beyond that, though, um, I do pass things off to colleagues periodically. But I, I have to admit, you know, I, I work at a university. I work with a lot of other creative writers. And, uh, you know, weirdly enough, I, I don't like bothering them with direct questions about my work. We talk craft all the time um you know so to some extent i get feedback just by bouncing craft thinking off of them um but yeah it's it's a slightly different relationship there but um but no uh, more recently like uh i i i got an mfa um from spalding university um in louisville kentucky and um i do uh work uh, on and off with some of their postgraduate workshop groups. Um, it's, it's a completely voluntary free thing that they do where they just basically group to, you know, they put out a call for alumni saying, Hey, 
who wants to participate in a fiction, poetry, or drama workshop, you know, the, for the next semester? And, you know, basically you make a, a rough, an informal agreement to meet with a group of four or five people, sometimes, you know, via Zoom, other times just via email. You just trade off work with each other for a few months, um, sometimes longer if you're getting along with them real well. Um, so, um, when it comes to my short fiction, actually, uh, you know, from about 2021 to 2020, actually almost the 2023 start, um, I was trading fiction with a small group of folk from that university. And uh, that, that was where I got a lot of my feedback from, actually. They had an interesting mix of very literary folk and then a couple of genre oriented folk. And, you know, at this point, you know, that workshop kind of dissolved. But I do still trade work with uh, one of the authors who I uh, really like science fiction and horror. Um, but then, uh, after that, you know, that, that actually had started kind of winding down and, um, I ended up uh, stumbling on um, a magazine called The Dread Machine. Uh, really cool horror magazine. I, or technically, they're they're dark speculative. They don't do direct horror as much as they do, um, you know, dark sci-fi with horror elements. But um, one of the coolest things, though, was um, so I, I submitted a story to them and, uh, you know, I got rejected. But uh, at the bottom of the rejection was an invite to join their discord Um and, uh, you know, I, I honestly, I, I didn't know jack shit about Discord. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, 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 I have a, a really solid Facebook presence because I'm a dinosaur. Um, I, uh, had a Twitter <laughs> presence going for a while, but now, you know, Twitter has turned just a disaster. Um, it's, Man. uh, it, it's messy. Um, and not great for authors, honestly. Um, it's, but anyways, um, and then, you know, Instagram never took off for me. It just, uh, I don't click with it as, the medium but uh i i actually suddenly got really interested in discord and um you know i joined uh the dread machines discord and um turns out there's just this really outstanding community of authors there um you know in various different stages of their career some have multiple books out some are actually kind of like rising stars right now it's a bunch of folk who are just doing the work plugging away at short stories and uh you know, one of the things they have there is they have a critique request channel. And, um, you know, when I'm working on new stuff, I'll, uh, you know, I, I don't do this with the novels so much, but with short stories, um, you know, I'll be like, hey, you know, I've got a 3000, uh, you know, word short story. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's dark magical realism. You know, anybody want to check it out? You know, I'll read one of yours back. And, um, you know, it's, it's a really informal system, but, um, I think you we know, have that on our Discord right now. We have some new writers coming in, pouring into our Discord, actually, ever since we hooked up with DBS Films. And um, Grindhouse, like he said, he's been digging out his old stories. It's kind of making me want to do the same. And I've <laughs> had the same problems that you addressed earlier where you you have good ideas for scenes, but you don't know how to flesh out the in-betweens. <laughs> and that's always been my biggest problem as a storyteller. I can write short stories all day. but when you want to really flesh something out, that's been my biggest issue so far. You've taken us on a journey through like the early years of the horror and getting into what well, you've mentioned already that you've, you've taught. Okay. At school. So you're teaching creative writing. What else are you teaching? Well, so, okay. I'm a, I'm a full-time senior lecturer at university of Tennessee, Chattanooga. Um, I've been here for 17 years um, and uh, I was actually hired here of all things, teach rhetoric and composition. Um, you know, uh, 
uh, just English 1010, 1020, which uh, I still do some. Um, it's not, uh, it's not the primary class I teach anymore, but I still teach anywhere between one and three in a given semester, depending on the department's needs. But, uh, no, I teach, uh, I teach a number of different, uh, different, uh, different things. I teach, uh, intro to creative writing is a staple of my schedule. Uh, it's one of my favorite classes to teach as well. It's just, uh, you know, kind of a light survey class runs through poetry, um, fiction, uh, and, uh, I used to do creative nonfiction, but I swapped that out for screenplays lately. And one thing I love about teaching that class is it keeps me grounded in fundamentals of craft. Um, I, I try to focus on skills of creative writing that transcend genre, um, that move, you know, that the same skills that you use in poetry can be used in fiction, can be used in drama. Um, you know, uh, there each genre has its own conventions and and methods, of course, but there are some underlying practices, you know, learning how character works, learning how setting works, you know, understanding why images are important, um, you know, th- being conscious of how you craft voice, um, thinking about plot and structure and the different kinds of stories you can be telling. And those, you know, really span all, all different mediums of writing. And so it's a really fun class to teach from that point of view and from the writing point of view it really does help keep me you know it helps keep and keep me reminded of a lot of the basic questions i need to be asking of my own work and that's actually you know sort of a a small piece of recommendation i give to everybody is to never stop asking the basic questions about what you're doing Um, Mm -hmm. you know you know remind yourself you know have i been using it you know have I put any metaphors in this? You know, do I use similes anywhere in here um you know just ask some basics but um but no um I also I do have a specialty a bit in Japanese literature. Um, I got uh, really interested in the author Haruki Murakami when I was in uh, in college. And um, like I'm actually like you can't see from the screen, but to my, my left over here, there's a shelf that actually has nothing but uh, Murakami books in various different editions. Um, he's probably my single most studied author of my career. Um, how, but, do, uh, how do you feel about Dragon Ball Z? <laughs> oh no! Can't do it. Don't know no. Don't know no me. I'm asking yeah. him. This I is love, my question. I, I actually really enjoy the manga. Um, you know, Dragon Ball was uh, uh was a great read. Um, I'm getting I'm getting mad. <laughs> um, so I have to admit, this show moves too slow for me. Um, I get it. Our whole episode. Shut the fuck up, Ricky! You son of a bitch! (laughs) And you know the episode's entire length is them forming a giant blue ball of energy that turns into horizontal lines aimed at their opponents. And uh, I had a roommate um, uh, who absolutely loved Dragon Ball Z. It was his favorite show. He had every episode on tape, um, and he had analyzed it to death. And so for the two years that I lived with him, um, it was on, you know, probably every other day (laughs) and he would speak at length um, for hours about it. It doesn't help that he was paranoid schizophrenic. Um, uh, I I don't have, I don't have pleasant associations with Dragon Ball Z, I am afraid. And, Uh um, I only ask result, because of your background with the Japanese. That that that's all. That that's the well, only reason yeah, I ask. There's a lot that's of my anime that but, I love. You know, Cowboy yeah. Bebop's incredible. Trigun, Evangelion. Um, yeah, yeah. Renme is a favorite of mine. It's a little more obscure. Um, you know, I'm a huge Miyazaki fan, of course. Uh, yes, we've raised our yes. kids on Miyazaki. It goes yep. without saying, I think. Ponyo, um, Ponyo then, all day. Oh, Ponyo's great. Um, yeah. my, 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 actually, you know, Ponyo is awesome in our household because. Um, my daughter used to refuse to eat 
any kind of meat. Oh, no. But then she saw Ponyo, and Ponyo eats ham on her ramen. That's right. Ham was the gateway meat in our household. Yes. Returning to a <laughs> oh, pork, yeah, pork is the goddamn savior once again. Thank you, oh, yeah. pork pork is motherfuckers. Meat. <laughs> pork is the no. best meat. It, pork superiority. Just saying. Pork, yeah. <laughs> There's your episode title, Travis, the gateway meat. Pork, well, I, th- I thought it was, I thought it was pork superiority. Uh, no, the gateway Either meat, one. the gateway meat Either is right. Gateway that's, meat is good it. too. I love that's it. it. I love the both. Gateway meat. You talk about like the mechanics of, it, we'll say writing because it, it, it goes to this. Um, and, and I often think about the mechanics of say different things. And I, I, I've been, I think the three of us have been talking about the mechanics of podcasting mm-hmm. recently. And, I I say this because just the other day I was I was doing something in the house and my wife was walking by and I know she was listening to one of our episodes and she was laughing and I figured she was laughing at something I said. I'm like, what's so funny? And she's like, oh, fucking Ricky. God, he's funny. <laughs> like, like, what the? I'm like, oh, like, like, like he sneaks up on you and he gives you. It gives you that little zap, and it's like you just gotta laugh. Um, That's why they call me Jump Scare Jesus. <laughs> so when it when, like, but when it comes to the mechanics of, and I'm I'm gonna go back to the mechanics of writing. Um, and I did kind of what you said about like your main character and what your main character can want, like what he can want. Does it have to start out being super profound, or can it be simple? And then can it evolve over time? Um, cause like with, with my character and my story, it's starting out super simple. But then when I get to a point where I'm thinking about what his evolution might be, I'm struggling to make him change. Grindhouse, mm-hmm. Grindhouse has a Heisenberg on his hands. Uh, that's what he's got. Kind he's of, got kind of, yeah. Yeah. Kind of, oh, yeah. I, mean, I know, and, dude. That's a great element in storytelling where uh, the character fucking goes dark and fucking, but complex as fuck too, because you, you find yourself rooting for the villain, but you know that deep down, this is some fucked up. Sh- that show did a great thing, at least from my perspective. Is performances and everything aside, we know it's great, but the writing alone on a show that summed up a finale of a series where no one was going to be satisfied, but somehow, some way, they satisfied everybody. Besides a few little <laughs> naysayers, <laughs> that show managed to satisfy everybody, and that's that's rare. That's rare. That's my thing with the writing, though, is that when you have a character and you decide that you want them to, I'm gonna say it again, evolve, and maybe the evolution is not necessarily towards the positive, but maybe mm-hmm. it's a means to an end. Like, is there a good, is there a good way when you're telling your story to make that more digestible to people so it's like i'm getting bad but i but it's for a a, for a reason so i mean to some extent you know it's part of why i chose horror as a genre Hmm. because horror is one of the few genres that doesn't have a significant expectation of a happy ending certainly it's desirable in a lot of cases but it's by no means a requirement um, you know, you watch a lot of, you know, a lot of movies, you read a lot of books. And one thing that always drives me nuts is uh, in a lot of cases, you just know the main characters are going to survive or at, at worst, they're going to survive until the very end. That plot armor is particularly thick. And um, you have a tendency also to assume that things are going to somehow work out. Um, horror, you're never quite so sure because, you know, by the nature 
of the genre that every once in a while it's going to throw you one hell of a curveball. I mean, you know, watch the movie The Mist. Um, mm. You know, one of the uh, the best movie endings of all time, if you ask me. Yeah. Uh, you know, it just absolutely pu- it like punches you in the face, the heart, the gut, and the nuts. Um, and the dick. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great <laughs> ending. Yeah, absolutely. Miss Carmody is one of my favorite <laughs> villains of all time. She is incredible. Why yeah, can it's no- understandable. Why can nobody pronounce that? It's Miss Carmody. I thought Carmody. it was Carmody. Nope, yeah, Carmody. I thought so too. Nope, either way, Carmody. either way, she is a fucking like I she's love hating that fucking I'd, villain. She's a villain you love to hate, and those yeah. are my favorite kind of villains, man. Yeah. Expiation, boys. Expiation. <laughs> yes. yes. Word of the day. But no. Um, coming back to your question, though. Um, so that, that is the first thing. I mean, you know, if you are in the horror in horror territory, you can you can get dark. Um, you know, you definitely want it to. You, you don't want it to be like reveling in the fact that it's become dark. Um, so, you know, if you have a character who becomes, say, sadistic or something like that, um, you know, if the audience feels like the author is enjoying that too much, they can possibly get put off by it. Um, but that being said, um, I think what's more important is coming back to that idea of a fundamental desire. So one thing that we want to think about from the scene construction point of view is that at any given point, we tend to have multiple desires. And I'm going to, you know, honestly, I'll go ahead and pull out the classroom example that I tend to use. Um, So, you know, I talk to college kids all the time and, um, you know, college kids aren't exactly known necessarily for um, the best disciplinary practices. Um, So, you know, everybody in that room, though, is there because they want to get a degree. Ostensibly, they want to learn. They want to be able to do well in whatever they're studying. So, um, you know, that's so, you know, you can kind of claim that there's a core desire to that room that everybody wants to, you know, excel in the class somehow. That being said, on any given day, number of different factors are going to um, give them a secondary desire, the momentary desire. So, you know, maybe they want to do all in the class, but you know what? Maybe they're really fucking hungover. Um, you know, and so at that point they're like, you know, I don't really know if I should go to class today or, you know, maybe, um, you know, there's a story that they're supposed to turn in. It's due the next day. And, um, they're like, you know what? I've got a date and date or story, date or story. And for a college kid, dates probably winning. Um, so, you know, they make these surface choices that also, um, you know, are, are also legitimate and valid desires. They're often based again on kind of fundamental desires, um, you know, desire for sleep, desire for rest, desire for to, to feel healthier or better to, or escape from pain, um, you know, any number of, of, of things. But those momentary desires interfere with their attempt to achieve their larger or deeper desire. And, you know, if that happens once, no big deal, right? You know, they, the, the day after they just get back on track and continue on. Thank but you. what happens when those secondary desires, the surface desires begin to consistently and ongoingly interfere with the fundamental desire, then the fundamental desire has to shift. It has to realign and start to change. And so that's how you get the Walter White character. Um, You know, you have this character who at the outset has this very fundamental, relatable, connectable desire. And he wants he wants to make 300 something thousand bucks to make sure his family's okay. blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. But then every success he has 
begins to actually change that desire to, I want to be the best at this. And so, you know, it takes multiple seasons for those, that, those things to converge. That mad scientist shit, for well, sure. It's that, but it's, it's, it's like, well, and I'm only saying, I agree with you, Ricky, but for this show and his. Well, you way, better because I'm right. You are right. And the way that Andrew's <laughs> describing it, I'm sorry, man. I just got to jump in. I've watched that show like seven or eight times and I'm not a fucking teacher, which I want to ask you, are you Professor Horror? No, I, uh, I'm, like I said, I'm a senior lecturer. Um, so I'm not tenure track, which means I don't have the title of professor. Can you be our professor horror? Sounds good to me. Okay. Sweet. We have professor horror. Jason, <laughs> you and Andrew have to fight now. Yeah. That's it. That's if Jason ever hears that. Go ahead. Go ahead and cut your no, promo. From, go ahead yeah, and cut your promo my, against Jason. I'm, I'm, and I'll, I'll make this short, but I am, I'm loving this interrogative. It is. It is so thorough. Look at you trying to use big words. I don't know what I that word you. means. I have well, no I know, idea what I, that word well, means. It's because I know big words. Okay. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> onomatopoeia. Okay. Yeah. But <laughs> the interrogative is great because I'm getting a different, a different perspective on writing. And maybe it is a, maybe it's the mechanics like you talked about. You use a different word. I'm using mechanics because mechanics works in my head. Yeah. Um, structure, but, but like, but like sticking to that and, there's not a piece of me that ever thought that I would want to appeal to like, say the general populace, but at the same time, I get why you would. Cause that's how you get sort of yeah. popular. So my last question, my last question, and I will shut the hell up is how do you write something that might be unpopular with say everybody, but there might be a handful of people on the earth that get it and want to see it. Like how do you do that and be okay with it? <laughs> I mean, I, I write shit all the time that nobody on earth is going to want to read. Um, <laughs> I'll read it, bro. I, I, I'll read it too, but I feel you at the same time. Yeah, I mean, there are pieces that I write that um, I don't feel will really have an audience. And I'm okay with that too. Um, you know, there are pieces that I write just for myself that are just some sort of, you know, self-expression yeah. um, or they're writing just because the idea amuses me and I just want to see how it plays out. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like what I think of as, as the play of writing. And then sometimes it's also the private part of writing. Um, so, you know, part of me would answer just by saying that not all writing is going to be meant for an audience. Um, and that's, you know, at some point in writing the piece, you do want to make a decision about, you know, what do you want this piece to be? To me, you know, one of my ultimate goals is, you know, to kind of do something like, uh, you know, a king or gaiman or something like that, where, you know, you get to that stage in your career where people are willing to investigate attentively whatever you put out. The truth is, I mean, it's really unusual that that's what happens out the gate. You know, a great example, I think it was, uh, you know, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, um, you know, often considered to be his best novel. I'll actually admit it's not my favorite of his. Um, I think it's fantastic. I think it's an amazing book, but it's not my favorite. Um, but, um, but no, um, you know, the initial run only had like couple thousand copies um and um it sold so poorly that they were returned to the publisher and that's why <laughs> first editions sell for like ten thousand dollars now because yeah. um it was a disaster of a book in terms of public reception but you know he kind of he kind of lucked out through his perseverance and continuing on but you know you know most writers don't get that um you know so my thinking is that um i'm writing stuff that's permanently shelved 
Um, you know, I'd love to share it one day if there's an audience for it, but I don't know if there is or if there will be. But then I'm also writing stuff that, um, you know, meets the needs of magazines that are out there. You know, great example. Um, there's a cool little magazine called the Translunar Travelers Lounge, and um, they're a science fiction magazine. And one of their re- uh, prerequisites is they like humorous and upbeat pieces, which uh, a lot of the times is uh, I'm not going to lie the exact opposite of what I do. In fact, sometimes my <laughs> wife gives me shit for having they, so many dark and brooding endings. They want but, the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Yeah, I mean, well, except, well, except maybe a little more literary, a little less action, yeah. a little more, a little more, you know, kind of uh, attention to, to sort of uh, character, perhaps. Well, I don't know. Guardians are a pretty good example of great characters, so I won't, yeah. uh, I won't knock those at all. But, uh, but no, I mean, I actually ended up deciding, you know, I like this magazine. It's fun to read. Um, you know, I came close on a couple of my earlier stories, but the stories got rejected because they had dark endings or a couple other things. Um, and so I sat down and I wrote a story and I was like, you know, I was actually about a third of the way into it. And it was about three robots holding uh, uh, long after humanity is dead, attempting to hold the seance. Um, oh, and, uh, oh, fucking rad. And, uh, you know, basically, I, you know, I was I was working on this and I was like, you know. I bet you this story would work really well for Translunar's uh, Traveler, uh, tra- Translunar Traveler. And so I, I kind of continued writing with that in mind. And I was like, and, you know, it turned out, I think, to be a really strong story. And they ended up taking it. It comes out, uh, I think, next month. Um, nice. But, uh, but no, uh, you know, so sometimes you do deliberately write with an audience in mind. And you know, you know what? The, my feeling is, is that um, there's going to be a chunk of folk who read that magazine and maybe they go check out the book and maybe they sit down at the book and pay a little more attention because they know a little bit about my work already. Um, so, you know, there's there's definitely a give and take in, in audience building and trying to get your work out there. And so, you know, there's some, you know, uh, but then again. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, we had some difficult times surrounding our family. And um, one of the ways I uh, kind of processed that was I sat down one night and I, I cranked out this short story. And, um, you know, it's one of the most intensely personal short stories I've ever written. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it, it's one that in a lot of ways uh, is, is is more meaningful to me, I think, than anybody else. I don't think most people who read it will see what I do in it. But that's another one where I was like, you know, um, there's a there's a magazine with the call for for pieces. Uh, I'll go ahead and just you know see what they think of it. And they ended up taking that one right off the bat. It's actually about the fastest from composition to sale I've ever gone. And uh, and uh, that one's coming out in Fusion Fragments uh, in two months. And but it's also, uh, you know, that was one I wrote entirely for myself. And honestly, I, I didn't really know there would be an audience for it. But um, you know what? Seems there is. Um, somebody loved it right off the arena, you know, right, right, right away. And um, so that's that's the other answer to it. Is I mean, I think I think to some extent, trying to write a lot, trying to produce material is really important. Sometimes we want to write with people in mind. Other things we write just because we want to and because we need to. And honestly, to me. Um, I do have a couple things that I have shelved that um, I don't really feel like sending out. But otherwise, I send out everything I produce to everywhere that I possibly can until somebody takes it. You know, th- three books accepted in the last 12, you know, three books in the 12 month period. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, something like 20 short stories since uh, May of 2021. You know, it's it's definitely a pretty solid clip. I mean, I'm not like the most successful writer out there by any stretch, um, but, you know, I feel like I've got something good going and I'm trying to keep this moving. 
Well, and we haven't had a chance to read these these books yet, but I want I want you to tell us a little bit, if you can, about the Mobius door. And I want to pronounce this right because I don't know, but I think it's Galactok. It's actually Galatok. Galatok. Um, so uh, I'll actually start with that one briefly. Um, so Galatok comes out at the uh, the end of August uh, or the first week of September. We're still nailing down the exact date. Um, but um, but no, th- that one is the name itself comes from a uh, an island in the Mediterranean called Gali Otok. Um, it's a science fiction story, science fiction horror story set about, um, I don't know, to me, about 60 years in the future. Um, but uh, basically, my my thinking is that uh, the name comes about from the result of linguistic drift. Um, the name Gali Otok gets kind of portmanteaued into Galatok um, and just uh, the local slang. Um, Gali Otok, though, is the site of a, um, in, a notorious former Soviet prison. My grandfather was actually sentenced there in, uh, uh, I think, the 60s. Um, but of the 16,000 prisoners who were sentenced to Galatok, mostly for political crimes, um, over 4,000 died from exposure, uh, disease, starvation, and uh, torture. Oh, um, God. And God so, damn. yeah, in terms of you know places to set a horror novel, it really seemed like it was kind of screaming that, for it. That sounds like Fuck a yeah. personal story, too, because that's your family involved right there, sir. Well, in right. uh, only in the inception, though, um, because I did distance the story by 60 years and I put a lot of intervening sort of um, speculative history in between. The characters are pretty disconnected from any direct family events, but it was definitely inspired. You know, the sort of the tone and emotion of it was inspired by me thinking about uh, my grandfather being sentenced there. And there are elements of the history of the place that do crop up throughout it um, that uh, that oh. definitely do draw from. A this family might, history. It might sound fucked up, but I kind of really like that aspect of it, though. And, and and I know that sounds bad, and I'm sorry for the oh. suffering that that happened to your family. But the the fact that you can create art because art is suffering, right? Like like a lot of great art is suffering. Um, I think I think I think that if you can channel something that someone felt, experienced, and really emphasize a message. And I'm sure you have a message in your art. Yeah. The way you've been talking this whole night, you 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 have substance to what you want to put out. And I'm saying this is someone I have not gotten to read the Mobius store or I'm 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 gonna say it wrong again. I'm so sorry. Gala talk. Yeah, that's close enough. I mean, oh, it's so, a made up word. <laughs> well, no, but how do you how do you want to say it? Gala talk. I haven't I haven't had a chance to read this. I know that Morbius store came out April 28th, correct? Yeah, so uh, Mobius Store is uh, my uh, tribute to small town New England horror uh, that I grew up reading. Oh, so coming back, nice, to you're King, speaking yeah, our yeah. language. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It, you know, I grew up reading King, and it, like I said, it was one of the first uh, horror books that really kind of, kind of caught me. Um, and I had actually started off wanting to sort of write a story that had um, sort of this complex setting, um, but then while I was writing it, I started doing. Um, a bit of research into family history, actually. This is also um, influenced a little bit by my my family's past, but my uh, my my family's Croatian on uh, my mom's side, and I really connect with that side of the family, partially because I've done a good bit of travel to Croatia now and really love the place. Um, but I was I was researching um, Croatian wait, folklore. Wait, and... wait, you're from Cyprus? 
Uh, no, but um, my I'm, mother I'm, comes I'm, from. I'm being dumb. I'm being. Oh dumb. no, no. Uh, my mother comes from an island off the coast of Croatia, though. So you know, kind of uh, not too far off from Cyprus, really. Um, but no. Um, so I started doing a bunch of research into Croatian folklore. Um, they have a lot of really crazy, like mysticism, and you know, they have uh, a Croatian pa- Slavic paganism is pretty fascinating. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah. so. One character relationship I really seized upon was the char- was the relationship between two of their folk deities, um, Perun and Veles. Um, Perun and Veles are very similar to Thor and Loki in a lot of respects. Um, and uh, th- they do have their own sort of flavor to them. But at the core, um, Perun is, you know, thunder god, um, often depicted as an eagle at the top of an oak tree. Um, sort of an imposing traditional, um, you know, leadership figure. And then Loki, then, um, Veles is the, the mischievous trickster god, trickster god who's always trying to pull one over on Perun. Um, and, uh, I got really interested in the character of Veles in particular. And, um, so I really wanted to frame a novel that would directly involve him as a character. And so, um, and I don't think this is actually too much of a spoiler since he shows up very early on. Um, but Velez is a significant character in the Mobius store, but no, um, so coming back to the main premise though, it is, a, it's, you know, it's set in a small town and, um, it opens up on a little boy named Stuart Bradley and he is playing out in the woods. Um, this also draws from my own childhood growing up playing in the woods of New Hampshire, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, he's building a fort. Um, he's not supposed to be out of the house. Um, he, yeah, he's building a fort out there and then he, he sees, um, a door there that's never been there before. Um, it's freestanding door. Um, but um, he's actually um, when it's closed, he's able to walk around it. But if it's open, it's only one sided. He actually can't physically move himself around it anymore once oh, it's open. Man. And when he opens it, there's this it's it's, it's basically a frame full of um, of blackness. He can't see um, anything into it at all. It's a uniform, completely flat sheet of black. And being the little boy he is, he kind of studies it for a few minutes, explores it, and then uh, he picks up a rock and throws it on through. Oh, fuck. And when the rock breaks the surface, um, the surface ripples, and then this dense black cloud starts pouring out from the door. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, from there, um, you know, basically, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, you know, he's an, an evil's been unleashed on his town. Um, and, um, as the situation in the town becomes increasingly dire and it becomes increasingly cut off, um, the townsfolk begin turning on each other and, um, the boy's family finds himself, uh, finds themselves in the unfortunate position of being forced to try to close the door. Nice. I cannot wait to read my free signed copy and I hope the inscription says, (laughs) go fuck yourself. That's what I wanted to say. That sounds, um... It sounds dope. It reminds me of like Stephen King's drawing of the three. It reminds me of the staircase conspiracy theory where people find staircases out in the woods. Yeah. But but yeah. this is this is part of that thing where all writers f- fight this thing where I I'm making this thing and there's this other thing that's like it. But it doesn't matter though because you know what I've encountered this in horror film and in storytelling in general. But I've encountered this throughout my life. John Lennon said, there's nothing you can say that won't be done or whatever he said in that song. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, so 
it's like you're you're gonna you're gonna have to make your statement with your choice and 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 the way you choose to tell the story that you're telling even if it's the same story as someone else that's fine like like terrifier to go back to that that story has been told a thousand times we know what the slasher genre has for us we know mm-hmm. yep. but it's still striking today that a new franchise can spring up and 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 represent itself as the past and then give us something new and refreshing at the same time and i'm not saying that just for the slasher genre i'm saying that for horror in general i think horror is continuously storytelling in general i mean andrew mentioned it earlier stories have structure it's it's been that way forever and that segues me into my one of my questions i've been waiting to ask yes. you 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 a fan of uh, joseph campbell Mr. Andrew? Okay, wait, uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, we, Hero uh, of a Thousand Faces, and, uh, wait, wait, I know, Joseph Campbell wrote the the Hero's Journey. The Hero's Journey, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know who he is. He broke, he broke down storytelling a long time ago. And that's, that's why I'm bringing him up, because he's one of my favorite, he is my favorite nonfiction author, and I just love, because I love hearing about this type of stuff. Um, storytelling, so, the structure of it. Absolutely. The I mean, history well, of storytelling, what it means to people, the mythology in it, all of that. So I've not read him directly, I would say, but I, I've actually literally read a lot of things that have applied him to other things. Sure. So things like the breakdown of the hero's journey in Star Wars or, yeah, you know, right. um, the hero's yeah. journey applied to the Odyssey. Um, so yeah, I've seen his ideas in tons and tons of forms and yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the hero's journey, um, the emphasis on things like, um, you know, character archetypes, um, you know, uh, that, that idea of writing with structural and cultural awareness. I mean, all of those things are different ways that we can approach it. Um, so, you know, kind of similarly to what Travis was saying too, thinking about, um, trying to boil down, you know, uh, you know, kind of stories into their basics where, you know, eventually the simpler you get sooner or later, somebody else has written it. So, um, you know, um, so, you know, you have the, like in third or fourth grade, you learn the basic conflicts, you know, human versus human, human versus self, human versus nature, sure, sure. human versus yeah. God. Um, yeah. You know, maybe you'll get a slightly different uh, breakdown. You know, everything is either a comedy I, or a tragedy. I can't read, by the way. <laughs> I can't read. I never read nothing. Never ever. Never according to Grindhouse all, but well, I just, I, all, I, all, all I was saying is when you go to the library and you're trying to I don't know the, nothing about God man versus to, nature. I don't know nothing about that. All I'm I don't saying, know Travis, is that, that when sounds you, complicated. You go to the and library. It like it's for nerds. Oh, for I need to go to the Dollar General and get my gallon of milk. I ain't trying to wait behind fifty old grandmas with bank cards no one ever heard of. You're totally missing a great <laughs> joke here and you won't let me get to it. All I'm saying, all I'm, I'm making saying my is, own jokes, motherfucker. <laughs> I know you are. All I'm saying is that when you go to the library and you're trying to attract the attention of a 10 year old girl, it's not because of what everybody thinks. That's well, all. That's I'm why saying. I was not letting you get to it. You just, I don't you just want little kids. You just want, you just want to, no, you just want to read to you. Just wanted to read to you. That's all you, you want. Weird. Well, yeah. yeah. That sounds like you yeah. after the civil war. Uh, you want little kids to fucking go to your fucking old folks' home and Bubba hoots up your ass. You want to fucking help you. Andrew, don't ask him which side he fought for. That's no, not appropriate don't, no, in today's don't, climate. Don't. We're not going to get into all that. Andrew, uh, I also wanted to ask you if you're a fan of Warhammer 40K. 
Uh-oh. I have to admit, never played Warhammer. I'm a huge D and D person. Same. Uh, so well, about the D and D. Well, yeah. so the thing about Warhammer is I am perpetually broke. And oh, yeah. Expensive. <laughs> yeah. Expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Is. yeah. Um, you know, yeah. We're all stupid. in the same boat. It's, We're all it's in the utterly same boat. stupid how expensive it is. <laughs> like, but the, some of the storytelling is, is rad. That's why I'm oh, yeah. asking about oh, no. it. You know, I have a, I have a, a colleague who's huge into Warhammer and, um, he's been trying to, uh, get me to read, uh, the Warhammer books. And I'm actually pretty interested in them. They sound like pretty, pretty entertaining. The Horace uh, Heresy action. The Horace Heresy shit is really rad. One thing that Warhammer does is that it's like very cartoonish and it's a parody. Like everything is always as dark and miserable as they can possibly make it. And it's got <laughs> horror elements, action elements, all that shit. But Rick yeah, I was, I was ass. just, I was just curious. He's got oh, me yeah, watching no. this one video coming up soon, real quick about like all the factions. And I'm trying to learn because I, we're going to do a Warhammer episode one day. It's coming. And when it happens, it's because I want to know as much as I can too, because I don't want it to just be Ricky being like Warhammer. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I guess. No, I want to know too. And the the lore is dope. I love that that the aspect lore, of it. It's kind of like Star Wars. The lore has just been written by so many people for so long that there's just too much of it to know it all. And it it kind of it kind of <laughs> helps it in a way because it's almost it's very myth it's very a lot like mythology where you have different accounts like you might have like the same characters but there's different accounts of the way things happened. And I, I just think that type of shit is rad. When your world building gets that deep where you have multiple people fucking like this isn't even religion. Now we're talking about like we have Islam, Christianity, Judaism, everything else, Buddhism, but Buddhism. <laughs> yeah. Buddhism. That's when you shake your booty real hard and you're like flopping it out. You know what I'm saying? For sure. Whenever yeah. you had, uh, Buddhism and and Taoism, Taoism, if you want me to be fucking real correct. But I'm saying all these different aspects of the human experience happening in a in a fictional story where you can see the parallels where like all these different religions are just fighting and they're not getting along. And it's also grim dark as fuck. Like yeah. Yeah, it's hopeless. It's hopeless in every aspect of the world. Every aspect of the world. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's the type of setting where nothing's ever going to get better. When someone is heroic and chooses to do the right thing, they're punished. They're fucked. They don't, they don't make it much longer. It's it like the alien RPG. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's one I've been wanting to play for a long time too. I've got the book here. I've never gotten the game of it together. I've watched a few uh, sessions of folk online, but, um, you know, it's definitely a, it's a pretty cool looking game. It looks brutal as hell. Um, I've got a brutal. I've got a brutal as hell cool looking game for you, sir. Uh oh. Yeah. to audible can we expect your your books on audible that is uh tbd um okay so that largely depends on uh 
combination of the number of sales and the number of reviews that get left on Amazon and Goodreads. Um, I'll read your book for very cheap. I'll be like, The Morbius Store by Andrew Nybar. Not, <laughs> not, not, oh, 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 hold on, I fucked it up. But I'm drinking. Hold on. I wouldn't be drinking for your fucking book read. Yes, you would. Yes, no, 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 I would not. No, sir. No, sir. I don't get paid for this. I would get paid for that. I would say The Morbius Store by Andrew Nyberg. Chapter one. Who thunk it? <laughs> Listen, I, I, I haven't gotten to read your book yet, but I want to. I want to read yeah, Morbius Yeah, I really, I really do. And it seems like you're into it cosmic horror it seems like maybe you've got some cosmic in you oh yeah absolutely that's our that's our fucking language here i want to dive into a little game it's called weapon of choice because you could go with this or you could go with that or you could go with this or you could go with that (laughs) and this is a little bit like joe blow horror show where we run people through the gauntlet so it's a this or that game sounds good zombies or slashers oh god damn it um you know i'm gonna I'm, i'm gonna go with with slashers Partially because now, don't get me wrong. I love I love zombies. Um, some of my favorite movies. Like we, we just watched Dawn of the Dead um, the other night, the Zack, Zack Snyder version. Yeah, um, oh, yeah. And, we just covered you know, that recently. Tim. Yeah, I mean it's a tan. And, it's a tan. Oh, I mean one of the best uses of Johnny Cash of all time. Um, yeah, boy. And, <laughs> yeah, it's you know it's it's a fantastic movie. Um, you know I love Twenty Eight Days Later. I love Twenty Eight Weeks mm. Later. I was a big Walking Dead fan until the show got boring. Um, For sure. And you know. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I, I like zombies a lot, but I also feel like um, the wave of attention they got um, kind of burned them out for the time being. You know, zombies to me are a, a, they're a, a, a generational villain. Um, you know, they, they frequently take on, uh, you know, the status of a metaphor for whatever's going on in the world around them. So, you know, so you get like, uh, you know, Dawn of the Dead and the, the whole consumerism metaphor, of mm-hmm. course. Um, you know, you have uh, Shaun of the Dead, of course, with the, uh, you know, Damn. apathy and uh, monotony. Oh. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, once you have a whole slew of zombie movies coming out, um, you start getting, um, increasingly narrow definitions or variations on it. And so I think if they get shelved for a decade and come back out, they'll be refreshed, renewed, and they'll be really awesome. Um, you know, saturation point, a saturation point of zombies. Yep. Yeah, sure. Slashers hit that point in the 80s for a while. I mean, you know, uh, the, the, you know, the heyday of slasher films kind of did burn out the genre for a bit. You know, you get, uh, Hellra- you know, Hellraiser in space, Jason in space, um, you know, Leprechaun once you reach in point, space. Yeah. I mean, once you reach that point, you know, the genre is really kind of played out for a bit. But, you know, now they're they're having a major resurgence. You know, you get uh, this really interesting mix of new slashers, new uh, new stalkers as well. Um, you know, uh, one that kind of stood out for me was uh, Garland's Men. Um, you know, mm. certainly uh, one of the more like that, that was a movie where, uh, you know, it ended. And I was like, well. That was not a set of images I expected to see. Today. Very bizarre no. film. Very bizarre oh, film. Yeah. Did, you, did you see Watcher? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, love that yeah. movie for the suspense. I love yeah. that movie for the suspense. 
Absolutely. And so, yes, I, I think slashers are really revitalized right now. Um, I think there's a lot of very ingenuitive takes on them. They're sort of taking a lot of different forms. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's going to last indefinitely. I think they'll, it's, it's, it's a cycle that's going to burn itself down eventually as too many copycats and uh, uninspired, yeah. uh, you know, entries get made. But, uh, yeah, so for the time being, I'll say slashers. Uh, maybe in five years, I'll be all zombie again. Werewolves versus vampires. I'm going to go with um, vampires. Oh, you hurt my heart. Oh, my heart I was ready butts. to go. I was ready to go arf, arf with you. Yeah. <laughs> but though, uh, it's got to be, um, you know, either a much older school of vampire or maybe yeah. something like the savage vampires from 30 Days of Night. Yeah. Have, uh, have you seen Blood Vessel from 2000? What, no. what was that, guys? 19? It was 2020, I think. 2020. Blood Vessel and Shudder. Brother. Brother. I will, I'm, I'm going to look that up. Go Please watch that. Do. It's about the Strigoi, the Romanian vampire. Ooh. Okay. That yeah, it's a, it's a little different, and it's a little different movie. It's like a comedy horror, but it's got really good special effects and lore. So it's like got combining all kinds of shit. Like it, it, it's doing a good thing. It's it, it, it's silly, but it's but it's good. It's good. Fuck yeah! Werewolves, werewolves are really cool, but mm. you know, I I do find that um, the rules of the genre, uh, you know, the rules of the creature um, are pretty restraining. I think for a lot of storytelling purposes, the well, predictability. If you um, include the Rougarou, the Cajun werewolf, it gets even more crazy and. And 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 convoluted because we have our own set of rules for our werewolves down here. There's a deep-seated thing here about a Cajun werewolf and how you can become one, and it's rooted in witchy shit. It's rooted in a lot of rituals. It, it's right. dope. It's dope. It's yeah, different. It's, you know, to be honest, I, I don't do a whole lot of vampire and werewolf as a whole. Um, I tend to, uh, you know, I, I tend to focus more on original cryptids, um, and creatures. Um, you know, uh, the, the one downside for both vampires and werewolves is you look at, you, in almost every case, you look at one and you know what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 I like there to be, um, something, I mean, I, you know, again, I'm a, I'm a cosmic horror fan. It's that unknowable cold universe that really draws me. And so, for you know, sure. uh, the more, yeah. you, you know, I know werewolves so well i know vampires so well that um like i do find it genuinely hard to find them frightening um, have you seen the cursed no i have not oh check the cursed out one. that's a good that. period piece yep. good period piece with some interesting werewolf shit well, that all goes right, into right. my next question period piece or modern setting modern setting and you know, I, I do, I do appreciate a lot of period pieces. So like, this is me coming at it from the writerly point of view. Um, I, uh, I, I honestly, I don't write period work. I'm not sure that I could. Um, it's just not, it's, it's not the way my mind works. Like, it's um, a whole I'm other a, level of stuff, you know? I yeah. Get it. Well, it, it's, it's a whole different exploration is the way I like to think of it. So for me, I'm really into science as well. Um, so I, you know, um, I've, I've often talked about the fact that some of my horror work is really science fiction disguised as horror that, um, you know, the Mobius story actually has some very firm um, underlying scientific principles based in, in uh, you know, kind of contemporary quantum physics. You know, that's uh, that's something that's uh, that's really at the heart of sort of the ongoing research and reading that I do. Fiction or poetry? 
So I don't know that I can answer that one. Those are really different. They, 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 it's writing I do for really different reasons. What, what will you do for the rest of your life if you have to do fiction or poetry? We only had do? to do one, which one yeah. was shoes. So, I mean, I probably would go with fiction. You know, it's, uh, if I had to say some, say, put it this way, I'd, I'd say my poetry maybe means a little bit more to me than my fiction does. It's not to say I don't think my fiction is meaningful and that I don't have some pieces of fiction that are intensely meaningful to me. But I would also say that all of my poetry is very meaningful to me. It's stuff that I put very careful craft work into. I spend a lot of time on single pieces um, and it is extremely deliberate. Um, Fiction to me, and this is also why I would end up choosing it, is um, a lot fluff. more of a playground. It's fluff. Um, it's a lot more fluff. I agree well, with you, dude, and I'm not trying to cut you off, but I agree because I write lyrics, and my lyrics are my poetry, but I write fiction, and I think that's a lot more playground, like you said. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, yeah. but I agree a thousand percent from my point of view, but go ahead. Yeah, well, which, one to... is, which one is more introspective to you, though? Poetry, uh, po- poetry, poetry. Yeah, that's what oh, I yeah. thought. You, that's what I thought you say, and that's it's something for me that I have tried, and I cannot get my mind to make the words. Just write songs. Write songs about how you feel, maybe, and I promise that, you that's poetry. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's. I it. promise you, it's poetry. Yeah. Lyrics are poetry, and if you write how you feel, that's your poetry. I think, and okay. I know poetry has rules. I know that, but not when you. Write what you feel, and you just write in free form, like like R.I.P. Carmack McCarthy. You just write in free form, and you don't care about punctuations or none of that bullshit that don't or matter. Or you, I don't want to clutter up my fucking <laughs> page with all these symbols. <laughs> Fuck that. I'm America, boy. That's what Carmack McCarthy said. He said, I'm America, boy. And he wrote how he wanted, and he did it, and he did that shit. But I think from the from the writer's perspective – and somebody who actually has a story that they want to like, and I don't care if anybody ever sees it, but I want it to be like put down and be finished. I wonder if that's maybe the better approach to write it in little sections or little, little bits of a story and maybe not, yeah, not try to force a, make it episodic, make it, make it, make it like little chunks of shit you want to eat for a snack. Yeah. And and not try to force. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like how the more inebriated Travis gets, yeah, the more yeah, he starts yeah. talking about shit. He's well, like, "Well, because you eat pieces of shit boys. for breakfast." I have three no. more questions for our guests, and then I gotta okay, let him go. Okay, okay. I'm just, I'm just, I'm loving the writing talk. I know, I'm, I'm, I know, I know. We're gonna so, have this is so he, helpful to me to be if to, he's down with it. Down if he doesn't chains. hate us, we'll have yes, him back. Just, yes, just. Yeah. Well, it's just it's helping me break down my chains, like snap my inner chains. It's helping me snap my inner chains. Oh, the, break them chains, of the mother things, of dragons. The things break that them. I can't get past. <laughs> you mother of dragons, boy. you sexy. It's, just, it's super civil helpful war to me. Man. So, if, if, <laughs> if nothing else, I don't Andrew, care who you fought for. You say it's super. Uh, yeah. I, okay, number one, I am not for the civil war. Okay, I'm not from then. Okay, wow, I'm, he's actually going to defend it. I'm not that old. Okay. <laughs> Come on, number, we know that. number two, if we all fought on the same battlefield, I'm still taller than two, at least two of you motherfuckers. Okay, no, so I can you're shoot. Not. I can shoot over your head. Yes, I could. Ricky yeah, I could. and Andrew are taller than you, you bitch. Uh, not Ricky's, me. Ricky's like, like five foot six. Okay, okay. Eight. So, so if if I had my heels on, which I would have probably have heels on back then, yeah, I could shoot yeah. over Ricky's head. 
Um, <laughs> well, not me. Enough. I'd be crawling around on all fours and like just, a man. Just for our buddy Cody. Cody, go fuck yourself. <laughs> oh, anyway, shit. Okay. I've got three more questions for our friend. Get to it. Get to it. Neil Gaiman <laughs> or Stephen King? Oh, man. These are tough Don't questions. bitch out on this shit. Don't bitch <laughs> out. Don't fucking think. Answer it. So I'm going to go with uh, Neil Gaiman. Oh, what? Spicy. Oh, you're blowing my mind, Kel. Spicy. Spicy well, answer. I like it. Oh, yeah, for three like so too. far. Oh, so for three. There's a I real like simple this. reason why, though. Um, Neil Gaiman, I think, has uh, a tighter body of work than King does. I think King has written a ton of books, and they are of varying quality. So I think, uh, you know, his cocaine days, of course, are some of my absolute <laughs> favorite pieces. Um, you, know, uh, you know, basically everything he wrote all the way up until Dolores Claiborne is, um, you know, uh, you know, t- top books that come to mind. when I think a horror. There's a whole stretch in the middle of his career, though, where um, I feel like he was trying to re, you know, kind of reestablish himself after cleaning up off of drugs and things like that. And I know he had a number of, he had the accident, for example. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that happened in his life. So, um, but I, there was a long stretch of books where I, I had a very hard time engaging with them. You know, Gaiman has the advantage that he wasn't producing nearly as many books as King. And so, you know, his books do tend to stand out a little more individually to me than um, segments of King's work. And so, you know, I, I'd be harder pressed to point out books by Gaiman that I didn't like than I am with King. Good, Good answer. answer. That's fair. I have feel, you, I, I have you read that. the Hodges trilogy? The Hodges trilogy? Have you read that? I okay. have not. Have you finished I, the Dark Tower <clears throat> trilogy or, or uh, a series? Oh God! God I no, I wait. Why? The, what the fuck? I read. Okay, so you're a Stephen King uh, fan, you bitch. What well, you yes, and no him. No, not you. Him. Of the three yeah. and the wasteland are three of my favorite of yes. King's books. Probably my least favorite of all of King's books is Wizard and Glass. Oh uh, no! No, <laughs> why are you clapping, you fuck? Because I didn't like it either. Ricky, I'm clapping Rick, and I've Ricky, never read no no. Ricky, I'm Ricky, just happy Ricky, to see you so upset. Right I'm now. so upset right now because <laughs> The Wizard of and Glass is like the best book in the whole fucking series, and I'm just wondering why these this oh. horror professor and this fucking asshole that we have on the podcast <laughs> is is. <laughs> Travis, shut the fuck up. I have two more questions. I know you do, Mister Mercedes, Finders Keepers, End of Watch, the Hodges trilogy. If you if you don't read those books and love love all of the characters, oh my god! I mean, and and uh, it I know there's a new <laughs> book coming out called Holly, which is a character from the book. Yeah. Um, if it bleeds, the um, compendium has a little bit of a story from Holly again. Start with Mister Mercedes, and if 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 you hate it, I will give you your money for the book. I don't think you will hate it. it is I actually so really wanted to read that one, so. It is so fantastic. It is so I it's again going back to the whole audible is not blasphemy thing. That is no, a definitely every not. every other week for me, I will put on Mr. Mercedes. It's Finders comfort Keep- food. Well, Finders Keepers is the middle book. It is it is to me the weakest of the stories, but still it it it, it does the whole thing. It spans <laughs> it spans a big chunk of, of, of Bill Hodge's life. It is 
so good. And I would say also Revival, if you have not read it or Ooh, heard it. Revival. Mm-hmm. That that book, oh yep. my lords. Yep. Oh my lords. I want that book to be real life, and I've never <laughs> even read it. Mike Flanagan is going to do it. Know. He's going to do it all. Okay, really? so Dude, Mike Flanagan's a yep, fucking G, yep. bro. He, he wants to do he wants to do Dark Tower, and right now he has the rights. He has the rights. So, That's and he cool. also wants to do revival, and I hope he does. But I've got two more questions for you. Travis, Thank you, you for have being the right to remain silent. No, anything, I will be. I will be asking him these next questions, can and will be shoved up your ass at a later date. Dostoevsky or McCarthy? Don't even don't take into account <laughs> that he just died. I'm going McCarthy. Yes, okay. you are. America, oh, I really do like uh, both of their work a lot, um, but you know, and this is kind of so. This is a conversation I have a lot about poetry, um, which is that uh, one thing I really wish is that, especially in like middle schools and high schools, they actually taught contemporary poetry. Um, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I, they had me reading like Shakespeare and Dryden and Pope and Lord Byron. And I mean, you know, they're great writers, you know, retrospectively, yeah. I've studied them later and they're incredibly talented, but they don't yeah. speak to the people, you know, poetry speaks to the audience back, that they're meant, it's meant for. Back in you the know? day, Shakespeare's poems and his plays, they used to take part in a, a audience reaction style, like, like WWE or WCW wrestling, <laughs> like that used to be the audience would react to the to the poetry the 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 story happening in front of them and it would change based on that you had poetry you had a play you had an audience and the audience was going to determine how things happened no to, to close that off i mean you know it's just dostoevsky is older i think he does write about universal things that are fascinating even now his experiences are crazy and interesting but um you know, I mean, McCarthy just speaks to a more contemporary sensibility. So I connect with him more strongly. Um, you know, uh, he writes about places I've been, you know, um, I can picture East Texas while, you know, and, and uh, you know, te- Texas desert when I read things like No Country, um, you know, uh, you know, I- I'm familiar with all of the landscapes that are described in the road, um, you know, uh, you know all, all that kind of stuff makes a really huge difference in how we connect with the work. And so, you know, to me, McCarthy is just closer to what I know um, than Dostoevsky is. So I would pick him just because, um, you know, he speaks now. Um, Dostoevsky does speak now, but just not quite with as much uh, as vol- as much volume as McCarthy does at this point. My so last I- question for for Andrew is, is 2001 A Space Odyssey a cosmic horror film? Yes, it is. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do actually. I, I, I think it is uh, at the end of the day a horror movie. If, if nothing else, I mean, they're faced with the um, a dark, unknowable force. Um, you know, it has uh, you know powers uh, that are roughly you know it's, it's the whole you know technology so advanced it might as well be magic. Hal is uh, you know such a fascinating villain in its in its in its own right. I mean, it's uh, you know it's implacable. Um, in theory, it should be emotionless, but it also shows vindictiveness. Um, so, you know, its motives are inscrutable because they are not what they're supposed to be. Um, you know, it doesn't even seem to necessarily know itself, which is also pretty fascinating. Um, then, I mean, if nothing else, you know, think of the last line, you know, uh, you know, David Bowman's last line, you know, oh, God, it's full of stars. I mean, you know, the, just the combination of awe and horror is straight out of, uh, you know, the, the core of cosmic horror. 
tonight we've had fucking Andrew Nyberg on the show, and that motherfucker is doing the goddamn thing. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the nightclub. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's been a long day, and this has been actually a great end to the day. I suppose I should plug the Mobius store, but, uh, you know, I think it's pretty good. Hopefully people like it. Uh, otherwise, uh, check it out. And, uh, you know, y'all just stay steeped in horror. Fuck yeah. Embrace bleak Russian literature. But at the end of the day, America. <laughs> Fuck yeah. America McCarthy, fuck yeah. <laughs> this is Grindhouse Zombie, and when you see Ricky in the gulag, he is not necessarily unhappy. Stay spooky and fucking keep on reading books, motherfucker. Reading books, motherfucker. Reading books, motherfucker. <laughs> Adjectives on the typewriter. He moves his words like a prize fighter. The frenzied pace of the mind inside the cell. The man on the street might just as well be The man on the street might just as well The man on the street might just as well be seconds well two minutes i'll be right back is it enough time for me to go have a schmiggin outside
Would this be a good time for a little breaky poo? This so, pee break, pee pee break, pee pee break. Uh, because he said two hours and we're oh. at nine forty five. So oh oh, uh, we're we're, we're uh, well. That's it... cool. No, I, I'm not gonna worry about it then. I mean, what's fifteen minutes? I'll be this right back. I'll be is, right back. But this is Travis trying to be overly respectful of the guest time. He does that, <laughs> like trying to be a professional. No, no, we we want to respect your time for sure. Well, yeah, I do, but but also go fuck yourself. You're welcome to the nightclub. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there we go. That's Travis. Okay. <laughs> pee pee break. Ricky, go ahead, be schmegging. <laughs>